0: From the Model T to the self-driving car, Ford has made quite the journey over the past 120 years, surviving the Great Depression and both world wars. The company now faces a new challenge, firing up its factories amid the coronavirus pandemic. Jim Hackett, Ford's CEO, is leading the company through this turbulent time, tasked with keeping workers out of harm's way as we hit the reset button on the U.S. economy. In this episode of Influencers, Jim Hackett joins me as we analyze the health of the auto industry and the prospects of a swift recovery for the American workforce. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Serwer. Welcome to Influencers, and welcome to our guest, Jim Hackett, the CEO of the Ford Motor Company. Jim, nice to see
1: you. Andy, great to be with you today.
0: So you guys are going to be opening up on Monday. must be an exciting day for Ford. Tell us about that process, Jim.
1: You bet. When we began to think about when we were going to turn the uh, factories back on, we found that the date was hard to pin down Due to the shelter-in-place rules moving in addition to doing the assessment on the virus and how virulent it was. We decided rather than focus on or obsess with the date, let's obsess with what does it take to make the spaces safe so that we build confidence in our people uh, returning to it. So, the, eight, uh, the 18th has become the date in southeast Michigan where the governor's uh, in favor, but I'm more proud of the work behind the scenes to get us ready for that.
0: Yeah, the governor uh, has this opening date. Did you talk to her and work with her in conjunction of this uh, time?
1: Yes. In fact, there was lots of discussions across the country because we have, you know, facilities in other states. And Bill Ford and I both engage congressional and Senate leaders as well as governors of those states. And I was really proud of the way that everyone worked together, you know, the mission of taking care of our people and also getting the economy turned back on.
0: Yeah. How do you keep the uh, workers safe, Jim? How are you going to do that process? You're going to be doing temperature checks and then what happens if someone uh, has a temperature? Take us through some of that.
1: You bet the 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 strategy uh, of, you know, washing your hands and social distancing really matters. In fact, and an epidemiologist two of them that counseled us uh, and they, they they believe the social distancing still is the one variable that matters the most so had to lay out spaces so that people can understand those barriers we created a series of devices uh, masks both face shields and masks as well as uh, proximity uh, warning devices that we we're trying in a couple factories And a whole screening process, Andy, that you have to go through each day as you come into the factory, including the temperature checks. A thermal camera actually gets to the bottom of that. And then testing is soon to follow. So testing right now isn't reliable enough that we would test people every day, but we believe that will be coming soon, and that's likely to be in the protocols.
0: Do you know what happens if someone has a temperature?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. They won't be... uh, put in the facility, we'll send them home, because we've had uh, our factories in Europe up and running, and we've sent people home that had temperatures that just had the co- a cold and didn't have the virus. But then if they have the virus, of course, they go into the quarantine protocol and the contact tracing, which has really migrated from, hey, Andy, who have you seen the last seven days, to a much more sophisticated way of mapping where you've been and who you've you know, been involved and in, 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 uh, near.
0: Now, the state still has, Michigan, I should say, and again, you have facilities all over, as you said, but Michigan has a stay-at-home order until the 28th. Do you think that should be extended? And how do leaders weigh the cost of opening up versus people staying safe?
1: I think that's one of the biggest paradoxes. I I use this line in a Wall Street call. Not sure that the bankers love this, but I, I got a lot of commentary from of the population of people that think of it the way I do, which is there are two truths here and they're in competition. One is we've got to have safe work environments, and the other is if we keep the economy turned off, we're going to have a fate worse than some of the things that the virus are causing. And so what we decided that you have to do is you have to ameliorate the, the conflict. And the governors, I think, are taking the same approach, which is the data shows the rate of infection dropping. Eventually, the virus has nowhere to mate. You know, when it's less than one, it's, it's dying out. I heard another scientist say, this is why it mutates, by the way, because it wants to be moved. And when the infection rate starts to drop, there's a benefit to us, but also the virus is going to start to mutate a little bit. This is why we still have to be wary and watchful.
0: Let's talk about the business a little bit, Jim. Um, people are losing their jobs. Car use is down. What does the demand side of the equation look like at this point?
1: It's been surprisingly resilient. You know, not all the states closed completely. So we have data that shows car buying continued, but it has been hit, um, as you might expect. Um, But it's a pretty resilient uh, product, frankly, even though I I don't mean to suggest that in recessions it isn't a lead indicator, but it never goes to zero. And that's what, in fact, we experienced, right, is that we turned off all the factories. We couldn't produce a vehicle. In the worst time in 08 and 09, the North Americans still produced 12 million vehicles, you know, uh, the the, the whole industry. At 12 million vehicles, the company makes money. Last year, there were 17 million vehicles sold. So between 17 and 12, is is that a recession we can manage through? We think we can.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, how does this compare to the Great Recession?
1: The difference is that the... Uh, knock-on effects of the liquidity problem in 08 and 09. I was chairman of a regional bank while I was running uh, Case. And there, there wasn't any confidence that you could go and get liquidity. Here, the government's done a fantastic job of really making that uh, a, a, not a question. In Ford's case, it had a revolver that had already negotiated that it pulled down, and it was able to raise an additional $8 billion in capital 10 days after it did that. So we have plenty of cash. In fact, we've told Wall Street that if we never turn the factories on, we're OK through the end of the year, which is an extraordinary uh, difference than 08 and 09 when you couldn't get liquidity. Now, I want to point out, Andy, that Ford in that period never took a bailout, and we're quite proud of that. And so there's a resilience inside the spirit of this company that when prices hits, we kind of become really uh, effective at managing through that.
0: Yeah, you have this new commercial out with Brian Cranston, right?
1: It is, and you know it's highlighting one really important thing. If I get any kind of commentary these days, it's because people worry about the supply chains being fragmented around the world because of uh, COVID nineteen, and we're able to share with them that because we make more vehicles in America for Americans, we have the ability to sustain supply for our customers. Uh, In the face of these kinds of problems.
0: So, you don't have any supply chain issues at all, you don't think?
1: The industry at large is going to face a challenge that uh, China and Mexico both supply uh, parts, but Ford's ability to put those together and assemble them here uh, is much, you know, much, much more intense, I would say, than our competitors. So I wouldn't say there's zero risk with supply chains, but we're in better shape uh, than our competitors for the American market.
0: Right. And you guys were making or are still making, I should say, ventilators, respirators, PPE. Are you going to continue doing that? And how do you have a factory making um, vehicles over here and making PPE over there?
1: Well, that's quite a story, and it's probably worth another show sometime because I'll just give you an anecdote. When, when we had to start making these masks, we, we found out that at the frontline defense, that was the biggest gap. People couldn't get protection. This virus kind of had an insidious way of getting through people's eyes, not just inhaling them. So these face shields mattered. There's a newer product that we created. It's a positive air pressure mask. So it looks like a face shield, but it has air behind it. We were able to migrate some parts from our seats that are used for cooling and filtering air. And we've made this uh, positive air pressure system. So the the combination of all those masks and then the big uh, initiative on ventilators, all was done within 30 days. It's kind of an incredible turnaround. Millions of all the masks have been produced, and the ventilators have started to ship. And we're talking about 100,000 of these being out by the end of May, early, early June. What we did is we put these inside facilities. We had volunteers from the UAW, and so they are not replacing automotive uh, manufacturing sites. So we're able to keep them going. And to your question, it's my belief that we need to stock up the reservoir of supplies around the country. And so the demand right now continues to just make that, you know, fill the vessel of supplies, so to speak. I think we're going to be busy doing this for at least a year, and then we have made a commitment that if we can help the rest of the world from here, we're going to do it.
0: Yeah, and you said that you talked to people in the Trump administration about this. Who did you talk to? What were the conversations like?
1: Well, there's a lot of you know connections that the administration was making to folks like us. I mean, I want you to know on the um, liquidity level, you know, the the, the Treasury Secretary. Federal Reserve, they they wanted to understand how automotive was faring in the early days in terms of demand and the ability to keep things running, because we weren't sure we were going to close everything. But then when it came to economic support uh, of these devices, I was working through the economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who I think had a very practical understanding like I did that, you know, the country was going to need these things. And, you know, Jim, if you could help, I said, yeah, we can. And it was a simple discussion like that, so we got after it. The vice president and his task force then took the ball and made things happen very quickly. They enabled what I would say would be normal friction for something to happen that quickly, and they were quite responsive all the way through FEMA and, and the vice president's task force. So it's been, been a great story in terms of business and government working together.
0: A little hack to Cudlow action there, it sounds like, huh? Um, so tell me about uh, Defense Production Act and, you know, how that came into play. That became a little controversial.
1: Yeah. In our case, you know, I love this, that the spirit of Ford's responsiveness back in World War II and pre-that uh, that date, um, we just thought when your country calls, you step into it. We were building these uh, B-52 bombers one every hour, which is an incredible output. This is where Rosie the Riveter Becomes well known. In fact, one of her relatives is still in the company. Um, but it, it became an important kind of instinct that says, you know, let's just get after this. We're not going to dot a, every I and cross every T. So we actually started building all of these things before we had any kind of formal endorsement or orders. And but I, again, I believe the vice president's task force, Larry Kudlow, and others were quite encouraging about that. So that that act, which I know matters in wartime and for reasons that we all understand, we didn't really need it. We were, we were coordinating without it.
0: Let me ask you about your take on the overall economy right now, Jim, and how much fiscal stimulus do we need at this point? Two questions.
1: Well, the, the, the power in, in having history is we can look back, you know, when the 08, 09 liquidity crisis happened. And one of the truths that you know, uh, Chairman Bernanke has passed on to the, the, you know, Janet Yellen and, 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 and now our current Federal Reserve Chair is that the economy is like a bicycle, and if it falls over, it has to have momentum to start again. It just doesn't start when you tip it up. So the idea of using these uh, you know, their help to backstop liquidity, which is another way of saying create loans for businesses. So that they can, uh, they will borrow this money and they will pay it all back with interest. But it keeps the economy going, keeps jobs going. So you got to look back and think that this is heroic the way they've responded in terms of coming up in priority with what needs to be done. I've even seen it extend into our, our Ford dealers, our Lincoln dealers, who by taking advantage of some of the small business loans, they were encouraged to keep employees. And this is a double benefit, right? Because if we don't put people on the social payrolls, we don't raise our social tax later. And of course, we get them back to work. And of course, high employment is the state of a really vibrant economy. And it was unbelievable. The economy was so hot before uh, this crisis, everything was going really well. And I think all the actions to try and get this started back again gives me optimism that it was performing so well that it could pick up where it's left off. Now, let's be practical and say that there's too much distance between when everyone had to leave and when they start back to work, then that's the tipping point where you could get into a recession. But right now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to Federal Reserve Powell, and he thinks that second quarter is going to be nasty. In the, in the economy, the third quarter challenge. But he is he seeing the fourth quarter come back, and I think he's right about that.
0: Jim, some people have called for an expansion of paid sick leave, uh, as well as guaranteed paid family and medical leave. Where do you stand on these things?
1: You know, it was my instinct, Andy, when I've been through this three other times, where I watched uh, CEOs like myself think, well, you'll, you'll right-size yourself back to prosperity. Again, the negative is putting people out of work into an economy which is not very sharp. That just makes it worse. If there was a way through actions like furloughs or pay reduction to keep people working or keep them on your payroll, in the previous recessions there was work, you were much further ahead. So in this case, we didn't have uh, the factory work, but we said we're, we're going to keep everybody on the payroll up to a point where then it would be foolish, you know, it would be threatening to the company. We have not crossed that line. And so our people are really positive about Ford because we have not sent them, you know, into unemployment lines. And with May 18th right around the corner and a week earlier in Europe, things are starting uh, to pick up for us. And it looks like that might be a wise decision if we can get the economy to come back to the levels that support our uh, our labor.
0: Right. I mean, you guys have had a little bit of a tough time. You had a, a difficult first quarter, you've warned of a a tough quarter in, in Q2. What's the plan to get the company fully back on track?
1: You know, I was surprised by the reference uh, that I saw in media that we had a bad quarter. The company's in trouble. I mean. I said, there's no plan called pandemic, which means if you turn your factories off, you're going to have this kind of uh, disruption. Um, and the difference between us and some other manufacturers, is their, their plants were in Mexico and some states that didn't close. so There were some people that you saw in the same quarter that produced more vehicles while we had to shut down. But that's just the way things happen, you know, and I, I believe that As we go down the path now of turning things back on, the Ford position is going to be an advantage because we do brand awareness studies and we find that people have ranked Ford as one of the top two or three companies of all companies in terms of their response to the virus and kind of their preference and trust for that brand. So we think this will give us an edge as people do come back to buy vehicles.
0: Right. And and specifically for shareholders, Jim, because the stock has, has lagged. You have a market cap of what I think 20 billion right now. And yeah. I know you'd like that to be a lot higher. Um, you look at Tesla, you know, everyone's talking about them, of course, and they're about 150 billion. So how do you how do you get to that sort of level, do you think? What do you say well, to shareholders? Andy, you
1: know, and it, it needs to be said, right, uh, the, the shareholders of Ford are the most important Constituent of many that you do care about. I have a family that you know has a vested interest. Uh, an executive chairman who sits around the corner from me. We talk three or four times a day. So there's no mystification about uh, you know the power of, of a share price going up. But I want you to know, very deliberately, Bill and I are thinking about the longest arc of the success of this company. And when I came in three years ago, you know, it wasn't planned, right? It was about the design of the business for the long term. And we took initiative in areas like restructuring in Europe. This, by the way, is difficult because of all the social plans. Uh, we, we're more than halfway through that. It's gone very well. And you know, making adjustments in our bureaucracy. The company is a really wonderful place to work, but as technology, like the one we're using today, has enabled uh, more efficiency, we've been able to lean out uh, the bureaucracy. These, this is behind us. We actually took that action. We took further fitness actions that we reported in product development. It took billions of dollars of future spending out by building platforms. Now, the question is it's a fair one. Okay, where's the stock price for that? The answer lies in the new products. And that's it takes three years, you know, even if you're fantastic at that, to get those out. So my tenure shows three years in June 1st. And But for this virus, there were a series of launches that were, were starting to roll out. You know about the Mustang mach which we did last fall, to great acclaim. There's a brand-new F-150, which is by far the, the most important vehicle in the world of any brand. It sells more than anyone. And then a whole new, get this, family of Bronco, which is an exciting uh, product that we, we can't get enough um, <laughs> Uh distance from how people care about that and, and getting it to market. We, we you know, if we had it two years sooner, it would be fantastic. Those three products are are part of a group that lets us say to you that 95% of the portfolio is all brand new coming at Ford. And that's where the the, the response to shareholders lies. Is is a statement I said in the annual shareholders meeting today. I had a dealer uh visit with a group of six dealers that I kind of bring behind the curtain. And one of them said to me, wrote me a note and said, Jim, my family's been a dealer for 45 years, but I've never had more confidence in the Ford Motor Company. This is the day after he left. So he's, he saw those three products that you're talking about, that I'm talking to you about, plus some other things that we're working on. So I, it takes, you know, frankly, it takes a lot of confidence to know that there's a whole group of people that would like us to do better and think we're missing the point that the share price isn't where it needs to be, versus the, the people that understand what does it take to create a long-lived company? And all these things that we have done, most of them behind us with the new product are what we think uh, bodes well for Ford Motor Company.
0: And does that include EVs?
1: It's a big, big commitment to EVs. In fact, they weren't in the portfolio when I took when I took over. Now is in the north of 11 billion and growing. and The key about the ev adoption which as you know with fuel prices dropping as we've seen is that in addition to uh, the co2 improvement that you get is more space and so now we find ourselves with this great opportunity that if we're in vehicles and we're worried about viruses we actually have more room to deal with some of the challenges so i'm excited about that platform being even more powerful given the way people will think about vehicles in the future.
0: I mentioned uh, Elon Musk and Tesla, and I have to ask you, do you pay much attention to what goes on in the land of Elon and Tesla?
1: You know, I like to refer to, I have, in a casual way, a competitor that is a rocket scientist, because you're always in meetings in business in your history, and you go, I'm I'm not competing over the rocket scientist. Well, we are. So the respect is super high for, for him and his, his bandwidth to understand, you know, the nature of the future of technology. But this is a place that I come from as well. I know it may be hard to make the connection, but I was around when the office had no computing that moved around or was wireless. And I got to see how it del- you know, changed the way humans interacted in their lives. And that's really the source for how we have advantage here, that I'm not suggesting that Tesla isn't good at it, but I think in one year, we'll have more more vehicles connected than they have in their whole life of being in business. And now that we have all of our vehicles connected and the data that we're getting that our customers will enable us to have, we can start to increase improvement and experiences. We can do things, Andy, like the vehicle can know that it's sick before it gets in trouble with the, the user. And we could do over-the-air updates like we're going to with the Mach-E that actually change the performance over time based on the preferences of the, of the owners.
0: Power of the network. I, I think you mentioned this a little bit, Jim, but are you actually looking at designing cars to mitigate the risk of the spread of coronavirus?
1: Well, I made this comment because I have some experience in my last job understanding antimicrobial surfaces wendell weeks who's a wonderful ceo that runs corning and i did work in the past on touch screens that have a material in in the glass that when you touch it you don't leave a virus Uh, there's an example of you could change the glass inside vehicles so that when you touch them uh, there's no virus or fabrics that at a molecular level molecule looks like it's shaped like a a spike so the the uh, viruses many of them can't light on them they puncture and you run your hand across a surface you can't feel these little spikes these are called antimicrobial surfaces so they've been out before but an auto industry you know well frankly the scale of the auto industry is going to make the cost of these go way down so that's the promise that i've been suggesting that that sits there and so, yeah, we have a lot going on in that area uh, that it's going to be exciting to share.
0: Yeah, just to loop back to the new models, are you rolling out new models this year? Um, are you delaying them or is the roadmap on track?
1: Well, that's a f- fair, very fair question. And what we've said to, to everyone is that in the beginning, when, and I think every company went through this, when you started to shelter in place at home, None of us knew, was the virus the kind of thing that would be a few days, a few weeks, you know, or extended as we now have experienced. So we started in the path of saying, how can we mitigate the delays and still make our dates? How can we launch without an auto show? Those things were being canceled. What we've now found is that about for every week that we've been shut down, we're gonna have to slide the launches of of vehicles. So that's what we've been clear about, and we've we've said, but they're still in our, our annual plan, and the issue will be you know, how fast the supply chains and the factories get to get up and running, because the key issue is we haven't been able to go and in, in, inspect uh, the suppliers for quality and compliance of parts that go in these new products. And that happens really quickly once you can get your people deployed on airplanes and put Put into other factories. Uh, so that's what starts next week. That's what's excited about getting turned on. And we're going to be able to tell the public more about these launches once I can see where we are in the part
0: development. Shifting gears a little bit, you've kind of gotten in a dust up with the administration and emissions in the state of California. Where does that whole thing land right now?
1: This topic, you know, of being CO2 neutral is something that. Ford's felt long before really uh, the the exchange that you mentioned. I mean, I got to share this personal story. When I was running Steelcase, we had one of the families, the three families that owned the company was an environmental uh, leader in the world, the Wege family. And one of my heroes was was Bill Ford over running Ford, a young CEO who canceled a very successful uh, product called the Excursion because it wasn't. It didn't meet the sense and criteria of of environmental that Bill was putting forth. And people thought that Bill was a little bit, you know, out to lunch, and that Mr. Wagey didn't know what he was talking about. Both of these people ended up being beacons in a world where it's now possible to see that you can have an industrial company that's environmentally conscientious, and it makes a profit. But both of us, in, in my arrival, said, how do we get product portfolio now on a path where we can say, we'll meet the Paris Accord dates. This is long before any discussion about automotive standards. That's really the underlying spirit, but I want to sneak in something else. These vehicles are going to be really intelligent in the future, and this is getting lost in the debate. Can't imagine how much time uh, and, and inefficiency you lose just being stuck in traffic. In fact, it's the highest contributor to pollution. So we think, Bill and I think, that there's a transportation operating system in the future. that choreographs these vehicles such that they're not stuck like that. So the CO2 is going to get just improved based on waste uh, of things like that. And so mileage standards are yet only one of the things that actually need to change in the design in the future to make CO2. Competitive.
0: Jim, last question. And I've got to ask you about football in Michigan which I know is near and dear to your heart, two-part question. First of all, do you think we're going to have Michigan football this fall, number one? And number two, what do you draw on here in terms of your football background and Beauchamp, Lechler, and Harbaugh, and, and those people? How does that help you with your job?
1: I appreciate the reference. It does matter to me a great deal. You can't see my whole office, but my father's picture is in the background here. He was an All-American and captain at Ohio State in the 40s. Ooh, so that, tells you, that. Yeah, tells you tells you about, about my family. And I had three brothers that all played college football. Um, the thing that I want to share with you, I had a long talk with Coach Charles just the other day. Because of shelter in place, he was calling to see how I was doing. I wanted to know how he was doing. His daughter had just cut his hair, and uh, she's 10. And so uh, I, I just love him. And uh, we had this quick discussion about what was happening in manufacturing and what would happen in, in that world. And you know what I realized, Andy? I am so glad that I only have one of these two problems to deal with because that, that stadium question and that participation sport question is really complicated with this virus. But it's my instinct that, you know, like we're working through in production the folks in that business will come up with a, a solution, but let's be clear, it's gonna be disruptive for a while, and, and then we will get through it. I think to the question of you know, uh, Bo Schembeckler, this was a man who believed something fundamental that I have found throughout all phases of the people that I've loved in my life, which is that integrity is at the core of what, if you're going to have a chance of being a good leader, Integrity is at the core of that, because it's, it's the basis of trust that people will be willing to follow you. Here I are talking about an unforeseen enemy, a virus. And there's a split in the country whether it's a farce or whether it's real. And who do you listen to? And the key in that, and what Beckler believes, and Harbaugh and I both buy into, is that you operate with the extreme integrity. That's a coach who would never cheat to win. And this is a CEO who's never been investigated, you know, for kind of trying to cut a corner in 26 years. And I think that is uh, at, the, at, the, at the center of gravity and the kind of person I want to be known as, someone who operates with extreme integrity.
0: All right, Jim Hackett, CEO of the Ford Motor Company. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Andy, I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to
0: you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.